0: Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
1: This is Wheelbearings. I'm Dan Roth. And I am Sam Abu-Al-Samad. So we are up to, what is it, episode 27, and it's uh, we got a bunch of stuff to talk about. So let's jump right in uh, to the garage. And Sam, you go first. What are you driving? Uh,
2: well, I just sent back the Jaguar XF uh, 2.0D R Sport today. That sounds like it, it, it. Did you shed a tear? I, I did, yeah. I Actually, I really like that car. I mean, it's been a while since I drove uh, an XF. Uh, this is the first time I've driven the, the second generation XF. Last time I had an XF was way back in like 2010, uh, and that was uh, an XF R, I think. Yeah, uh, which is
1: a, it's a hell of an entertaining car. Oh, but yeah. and and the new XF, like it's an so the old XF was what that was the the uh, basically an aluminum version of the do 98 platform. So that was like old engineering they change.
2: They changed quite a bit. Um uh, did they go into the XF? I mean, you know, I mean the whole structure was, was redone, you know, in aluminum, you know, some of the, um, some of the suspension architecture and stuff was largely carried over from the, the, uh, the old S type, the do 98, uh, which al- was also shared with the, uh, the last Ford Thunderbird and the Lincoln LS uh, right but um yeah this one is all new you know i mean it's it's part of the new generation of Jaguars uh and Land Rovers you know developed under um Tata ownership you know and i mean it's it's really well done you know i mean it's it's a good looking car um drives really well and you know it's interesting that um you know right after you know Volkswagen you know basically got totally killed on diesels, uh, you know, Jaguar Land Rover started introducing a bunch of diesels to the American.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, and so that's their, so where I guess where I was going was like, uh, I liked the XF because of its unruly, uh, not necessarily unruly but like it, it's a it was a car that knew how to have fun yeah and it's and it still is even with this new platform and it always looked good and it still does it's a little crisper now um so they, they kept everything that was good about it they made it better and now i'm really interested in the new ingenium or ingenium or however you say it but the, the two liter turbo diesel um that's 180 horsepower engine they have a gas version that's i think like 240 something horsepower but so how is it
2: it's really good um you know for for a two liter you know it's one of the more powerful uh two liter diesels 4 two liter four cylinder diesels you're going to find um you know 180 horsepower three i think 310 foot pounds of torque yeah some, something big like that <laughs> yeah or three, 318 actually um so i mean it feels good and strong uh especially when you put it in in sport mode you know if you if you drive it around in, in driver in eco mode you know i mean you'll get a little better fuel economy but you know it's it's just, it's a little more sluggish off the line, you know, and it's, you know, it doesn't, even in sport mode, it doesn't actually, you know, sprint off the line. I mean, it's typical diesel, you know, slightly laggy right off the right. line. It, just,
1: it, it, it soon, gains speed like yeah, a, you know, like soon, a, a stone rolling downhill. It's, soon, <laughs> yeah, as soon
2: as you're moving, you know, it, it goes, um, you know, and it feels really strong, um, you know, the, the transmission shifts nicely, uh, you know, really quick shifts, uh, which is good. You know, it's an eight speed automatic, uh, you know, and given the, the limited rev band of a diesel engine, you know, you want something that is going to feel good when it's shifting because it's going to tend to do it a lot. Um, but, uh, yeah, you know, it's 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 clearly you know very much of an evolution you know you know very much of an incremental update from design wise from the the previous xf but there's nothing wrong with that it's a it's a really nice shape um so it's surprisingly roomy inside very comfortable um you know, Jaguar's um, current, you know, their their new infotainment system is a huge step up from the last, which, you know, is not saying a whole lot.
1: Because- yeah, well, the last was not, not good. Right. So this is um, in control, in control touch. And you probably yeah. have like the fanciest version that has all the apps and all that stuff, mm-hmm. too. Right.
2: Yeah. I mean, I didn't use any of that. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, once I got my phone paired up, you know, I just used used that. Um, Did So just- it worked for.
1: But- did it work for android auto and all the there's no
2: android auto or carplay support yet um hopefully they will be doing that within the next year or so but right now they don't so you know it's just standard bluetooth streaming but the you know the the car itself you know is great to drive um you know one one thing that i've found a little unusual um you know typically on diesels you know where they've got a urea injection system um usually uh Next to the uh, the fuel filler nozzle, you'll find a second nozzle there, which is for refilling the the urea tank. Um, on the Jag, uh, that fill, that extra filler is instead of being next to the uh, the diesel fuel filler, is actually in the trunk, which it seems like kind of an odd place to to put it. Um, hmm. But hey, whatever, you know, just got to be careful. You know,
1: it's Jaguar. Yeah. yeah.
2: If you've got stuff in the trunk, just be careful when you're refilling it. Although usually. You know, the re- the refill, you know, the tanks are usually sized um, so that your refills of uh, the, the ad blue or diesel emissions fluid, you know, how, however they call it, um, you know, are timed typically with the uh, oil changes. So usually when you take it in for an oil change, you know, they'll they'll top up the uh, the ad blue tank. And that's typically the way it works.
1: Yeah it seems like the the real difference there is how much you demand of the engine. I think if you're asking it for more performance, you know if you're beating the hell out of it all the time, it's going to go through that stuff more.
2: Yeah. Um and but so typical driving, you know, I mean it'll, it'll yeah. last you 10,000 miles between a refill, you know, a couple of gallons of that stuff.
1: How weird is it though that like you just talked about putting it in sport mode? I'm just thinking like a diesel with a sport mode that just se- doesn't seem right. I mean, although there were diesels that ran you know the Indy 500 and stuff, but still,
2: yeah, I mean, it just you know, seems weird. Uh, diesels won a whole bunch of 24 Hours of Le Mans over the past decade, you know, with Audi colors. That's true. That's so, true. You know, yeah, you know, there's you know, in in modern terms, you know, high performance diesels are not mutually exclusive. I mean, you know, Porsche builds cars with diesel engines in them.
1: That's true. But I mean, Porsche has a history with diesel. They had the tractor
2: back in like the late 40s. Yeah. Okay. But I mean, that doesn't really count.
1: <laughs> so many things that I say don't count.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I mean, um, so, so, you know, what, you, one, one thing that's particularly impressive about this thing is, you know, despite, you know, having pretty decent performance, it's also amazingly fuel efficient. Um, you know, I averaged over the course of the last week 34 miles per gallon and a couple of highway drives, you know, got, you know, up to 42, 43. Um, so, you know, this thing, this thing's really, uh, really stingy on fuel. So you won't have to visit the, uh, the gas station very often.
1: Yeah. And what does that work out to, um, range wise? It has like 500 or more in terms of miles per tank, or is it not quite that much? Uh, you know,
2: I'm not sure. Uh, let's see. Or, fuel, yeah. Fuel tank capacity is 17.4 gallons. So it's going to yeah. a big tank. So yeah, you, you're going to get well over 500 gallon, 500 miles on this thing. That's that's a lot.
1: That's like a a week and a half of driving, even for me with my ridiculous commute. Um, You know, plus all the like the weekend driving and stuff that that's that's just a lot.
2: If you you know, if you're if you're talking about a a long road trip, um, you know, if you're it's a highway road trip and you're getting 40 miles per gallon, that's almost 700 miles. Yeah, I mean, you're going to have to stop to uh, to relieve yourself before (laughs) you before you're going to need to refuel this thing.
1: Yeah, and that's what I found with um, my one of my S60s had or both of them I think had a, a 21 or 23 gallon tank and and my T5 on the highway uh would get close to 30 miles per gallon. And so yeah, I think the the longest I ever went on a tank was like 530 miles. And you just like you you're like, "Man, this car is just it has way more stamina than I do." Yeah. <laughs> like, I gotta I got to stop. I got to get that's out. The
2: thing about diesels, I mean, I remember a couple a few years back um, when, uh, Volkswagen launched the jetted, uh, TDI and, you know, they were doing, um, they did some commercials, you know, talking about it, getting, you know, like 750 mile range on a tank, you know, it's just, that's nuts.
1: Yeah. And this, this car is better in every way than the old XF that we, they we like, you know, it's, it's roomier, it's, uh, it's quiet, it handles and rides nice. Like it does, does all the things. So I guess, you know, the idea of a Jaguar with a diesel, Uh, to some of the those of us maybe with an outdated perception like i just showed with my my saying like diesels with a sport mode is weird um but just it it does the diesel thing seems to fit with jaguar It, it works within the whole sort of brand that they've they've cultivated
2: yeah and you know especially you know in the sedan you know i mean all all the other characteristics of this thing are just like what you would expect out of a you know any jaguar sedan or you know, Cooper sports cars, got crisp handling, uh, decent ride quality. You know, I mean, it's not, it's not plush, but you know, it's comfortable. Um, but you know, good, good steering. Uh, so, you know, everything about it is exactly what you expect of a Jaguar. It's just a lot more fuel efficient. Um, you know, you, I don't think you would want this engine say in an F type. Um, but certainly in the XE or the XF, you know, I think it's a, it's a great combination.
1: Now, what was the sticker?
2: Uh, 62 grand. That's a deal. Yeah. Like if it's, yeah, it, I mean, you know, you compare that to a five series or
1: right, we'll get to that
2: six, <laughs> you know, or, uh, the BMW or a Mercedes E class, you know, I mean, that's, that's actually a pretty good deal. Yeah. And that, that's the other thing, uh, about a year and a half or so ago, you know, Jaguar decided, you know, that what they found was, you know, they, um, around 2011, 2012, you know, when they started bringing up a new generation of vehicles, they started bumping up the prices to, you know, put them more on a par with their German competitors. And, you know, they, they found that, you know, it, it, it was hurting their sales a bit. And they ended up having to discount the cars a lot, you know, to, in order to get their the sales that they were looking for. And so what they did was they went back basically and just repriced everything. And so, they did. Yeah, I, I remember that. Yeah, so now they're, you know, and, and they repackaged everything. So now, um, you know, they're basically they're basically selling the cars without discounts at, you know, actually at the discount price, a, a little well, a little actually a little bit higher transaction price than what they were getting before.
1: So, right. But but they they when they did that, you said they repackaged it and they, they did. They they actually added more
2: standard equipment. Right. And so uh, they so now they pulled the they, prices you know, back. It seems like more, you know, a better value to customers. And, and
1: then when they added service to uh, yeah. like schedule maintenance and stuff. So they, they really want people to buy their cars. <laughs>
2: yeah. You know, so, I mean, you know, base XF starts at about 50 grand now. Um, and, you know, the uh, one that I drove, you know, had the R sport package, uh, which has the bigger wheels and tires and, you know, all the all the options on there. And that was that came to about sixty two thousand. So that's, you know, it's not cheap, but it's it's a it's a that's a good value relative to the segment.
1: Well, and that's, you know what, that's a good place to pivot, uh, because, you know, I had the five series last week. I just had it for like a, a couple of days. So I spent a full week with it. Um, and that can sort of get us to our first topic for the evening. But, uh, you know, that the five series starts at 51. Um, the five series that I drove had 20, 20, plus thousand dollars worth of options on it. Uh, and it wasn't topped out. There was, there were other things you could have added to this. Uh, so you know at 62 the xf is really really competitive i'm sure it actually has a, v- a very pleasant level of equipment the r sport uh t- that's a newer trim level and it tends to be you know pretty well equipped just sort of like right out of the box you just select the r sport and y- it's 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 nice you can add a thing or two if you want but generally it's 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 very competitive so uh, i'm sure that to to comparably equip Either you know an E-Class or an A6 or a Five Series is, is probably going to cost you more money.
2: Yeah, well, and also you know at that sixty two thousand dollars price up, that, that was also uh, with all wheel drive. Uh, so you know that's oh uh, yeah, you're that's another, yeah, another couple of grand on there.
1: You're not getting X drive. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, the the Five Series, um, and I actually uh, I wrote a post for for Forbes, which will go up tomorrow. Um. But it really made me scratch my head because you know you think of BMW 5 Series and, and really my first awareness of the BMW 5 Series was the E34 in the 90s. Um, that was just such a driver's car. It was like the epitome of BMW and like what you think of the E34 and the E39 were really sort of the pinnacle. Um, this one is just it, it's not a driver's car, and so it made me think like well. Does it doesn't even matter. Do, do driver's cars even matter or, or has the definition of a driver's car
2: shifted? Um, well, I think I think driver's cars do matter. But unfortunately, it's to a very small segment of the population like us. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I, mean, to, I think to most consumers today, they don't care.
1: Well, yeah, I mean, the. I did some some poking around. And so part of it, I think, is just, you know, the buyers for these cars are they did their thing with the E34 and the E39. And it's it's like the same people. You know, it's that uh, 65 to 70 year old baby boomer. They have the 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 earning ability to purchase one of these cars Uh, and they're they're kind of not interested anymore in getting their kicks that that they did earlier in those cars. They they they're a little bit more sedate. They, they they want something that's, you know, roomy and comfortable and and you know, high quality and and you know, is familiar. Uh but they don't necessarily need something to just sort of, you know, give them an adrenaline rush. They just want to get there. And and you know, that's that's largely what the 5 series is now, at least the 530. Uh
2: well, you know, you know, I think you know part of the problem is that all, all cars, all modern cars have just gotten so good. I mean, even, you know, the most basic mainstream cars, I mean, if you, if you look back, you know, the early nineties, you know, if you remember the first generation Ford Taurus SHO, I mean, that thing blew people's minds.
1: You know? It also blew transmissions. Well, the,
2: the, you know, there's that too. But, You know, I mean, that, that car had 220 horsepower, went zero to 60 in about six and a half seconds you know I mean, it was it was pretty it was rare. that qu- that's quick i it thought it was it certainly was for that time it was very quick for that time but even now that's a quick car well yeah but the thing is now i mean you you know a basic um you know v6 toyota camry or honda accord does the same thing
1: no i know and it's probably actually quick. But those are probably like in the fives if you launch them um, right actually
2: yeah maybe not I, but. yeah i think they're actually just under six seconds that's crazy so that's a that's a like in the fast car i not yeah you know and you know, i mean nobody considers that special yeah know, and and you've got um you know a lot of cars especially you know certain brand of electric cars you know or actually all all of these high-end electric car startups you know fighting over who's the quickest zero to 60 you know because they're running two four two five two three seconds that, or 60s well,
1: it's for an electric car too like that's such nonsense because it's well, it's really not hard to make an
2: electric car that quick right and you know the thing is who cares and who cares? and especially with an electric car you know, i don't, <laughs> you I don't know? care how golden your butt is you know you're not going to be able to tell the difference on the road between a car that goes from zero to 60 in 2.3 seconds or 2.5 seconds yeah you know, it's 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 no it's at the point where it is utterly meaningless anymore uh, you know, and, you know, there's a story that came out today on um, uh, uh, Tesla fan site, uh, electric, uh, dot co, um about the uh, the next generation Tesla Roadster, um, which is, you know, maybe coming out in a couple of years or, or not, uh, that it's supposed to uh, that Elon Musk is considering a target of under two seconds uh, for zero to 60. It's like, where are you ever going to use that? I mean, you know. I mean, I know you want some quick acceleration, you know, to do passing maneuvers and you know to merge on the freeway. But how much do you really need? Yeah, you know, I mean, I I am a guy whose whose philosophy my whole life has been: you can never have too much torque. But um, you know, as that's a, a good philosophy. I like I, that. You know, <laughs> I, I'm kind of starting to think: well, maybe you can. I mean, you know what what what's the point? It's not like you can use it anywhere in the real world. You know, and in fact, if you have a Tesla, you can't even use it very often because if you use maximum acceleration more than a certain number of times, it gets recorded in the uh, the control system and it'll start dialing you, dialing you back. And, you, you know, you it won't let you have full acceleration anymore because it's trying to protect the battery and the right. electronics and everything.
1: Well, and that's what I was like sort of thinking of with the electric car. Like, yeah, you can get a really you can tear off a really quick pass once. First of all, it's stupid just because of. Of you know, what are you going to do with that? Where are you going to do that? You can't, you're never going to get that quick on the street. The, The surface doesn't have enough traction. You don't have enough space to really do it. Like it's just beyond that. You, you, you,
2: you run the risk of damaging the batteries like yeah. it's or it's, it, it's, it's just well, like it's abusive it's not it's not even just evs you know, i know i'm sounding like a cranky old man now but um this, you know i know i'm taking your spot here but um
1: <laughs> you can have it now i will cede that territory
2: yeah I modern you know modern, <laughs> you know, modern supercars and you know hypercars you know like you know porsche 918s and mclaren p1s like you know you it, you who drives these things you know ridiculously rich people drive them, you know, and they they, They usually drive them poorly, usually poorly, you know, trundling along Rodeo drive in Beverly Hills or, you know, up and down, you know, South beach or somewhere else, you know, at, at low speeds where, what, what is the point of driving a car like that? You know, so slow other than to show off how rich you are just, you know just to show the world how much money you've you you have to you know light on fire it's you know it, to me it's just stupid
1: okay so thus endeth the uh the 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 rant. Uh, the this the political socio psychological the segment of the
2: rant yeah um cuz we've got so yeah, to about tonight
1: well you know i i as i got to analyzing you know sort of um the the driver's car or lack thereof that i was finding in the new uh five series which is like the, it's the g something it's a g11 i think i forget the platform
2: i think so yeah
1: but either way uh you know so we touched on that it's it's more than uh, driver's cars used to be you know it's it's more size it's more weight it's a lot more technology to, it's so much more performance I, i'm sure this thing could effortlessly even with the 2 liter engine that it's got the two liter turbo engine uh that the you know they use it in minis and x1s and other stuff um it, that's what they use in the 530i i'm sure it probably outperforms pretty much every e34 except for maybe the m5 yeah um you know and it 30 by the way oh g30 okay uh and it, it does it effortlessly as well like you just don't even know but that's the, the problem like there's also less to the car. There's less feedback, less, um, you know, definitely no quirks. This is pretty trouble free.
2: None of the visceral excitement you would have gotten out of a car. you know, Yeah. Or 30 years ago.
1: It's I, th- I thought it was boring. Yeah. And uh, like it's a BMW and it was boring. And, and if you actually want to to sort of get it up on the edge. And this is this is why I'm um, assuming this is one of the reasons why you bought a Miata was because you can it's the fa- the slow car fast right you can get it out to the edge of its performance envelope without really putting anybody in danger to get this car out there where it actually starts to you know deliver some of that driving enjoyment it, you you're at extra legal speeds you're really risking it and with the run flat tires and the numb power steering like you're you're actually like you you don't you don't know how close you're coming to to the edge. And, and that was one of the issues I had with it was um, it was optioned up, uh, you know, starts at 50, it was optioned up to $75,000. Uh, and it had the the active steering assist or whatever that it uses variable uh, assist and rear wheel steering. So it rotates in this really uncanny way. Um, and, and it's a neat trick, you know, when when you get rear wheel steering into the mix, it makes the car feel smaller uh you know because you you it just it, it rotates around an axis that it wouldn't normally um with a, the, the wheelbase the way it is so it's 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 a neat sensation but you also wind up like getting either more or less than you expect you can never really sort of dial in what it's going to do for you at, at least i found with this this particular car it wasn't predictable enough um at least for the week i had it so i really didn't like ringing it out or trying to so i wound up just sort of you know, it was it was just a big Camry. <laughs> At that point, it was like a car that I didn't didn't want to push because I didn't know how far I could push. And and uh, so I I was I'm sort of sad that it's like it's it's less interesting, even though it's it's probably the best performing
2: five series ever. Uh, you know, on paper. Um, and, and and even it's, on the road, it's just that you know. It- you know, and and this is not a knock on BMW specifically. No, everybody does it's, this. Yeah, it's it's everything in the segment, and, and you know, well and from mainstream up through you know premium cars, everything has gotten so good that it's become less interesting.
1: Yeah, and that's so th- part of the problem is definitely me, um, because I want and expect a certain thing out of a particular car, uh, and this is one of those nameplates that just is supposedly known for it, and so I went into it with my preconceived notion of what it's supposed to be and how it's supposed to drive, um, where BMW wants to sell cars. <laughs> so they're making the cars the way people are buying them. Um, and you know, it, it is a nice car. It's big. It's very comfortable. It looks great. It's high quality throughout. It's built well. It's you know quiet, smooth. It has that, that BMW ride. That's just very confident. Um, you know, I, there's nothing to really complain about. All the, the sort of rough edges have been really burnished, um, but you know that's a complaint in and of itself. I guess is where where I'm getting at. You know, and the real horsepower race in in so many cars, and especially in this segment, is it's in the dashboard. Yeah, it's the technology. Yeah, and um, you know I can't really knock iDrive in terms of its competitive uh, set. Uh, it's it was one of the first, and it's you know because of that, it's now one of the best. Um, it's it's really good. It certainly,
2: um, I mean, you know, it had its issues in the early days, but you know, the the current iteration of iDrive does work really well, and the um, yeah. UI has gotten so much better and it's so much more responsive.
1: But I did find it distracting. You know, like even even as good as it is, it's still a trinket that you're fiddling with. You know, instead of just just driving and. You know the the tech in this car is like it wants to do a lot of stuff for you, and I think again that's what the buyers who buy these things want. But that's what drives me nuts. <laughs> you know, you can't even shut it off. Like if I open the door and then hit the 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 uh, start stop button, the like the audio system doesn't shut off.
2: No, it doesn't shut off until like, you get out and close the door.
1: You have to lock the door <laughs> to make it. so I, I'm just like. It, is that a feature? Like, I'm just, I'm not going to walk away with the, the radio playing like that. I, that's wrong to me. Like, you're going to run down the battery. You got to make sure the car is off. And I, I know it's it's it is a feature, but it's yeah. And I couldn't find the setting to actually disable that. I'm
2: sure that there is some I, setting. I think it is somewhere in the in the menus, but.
1: Um, but I found that, and like the the like the fan speed, no matter how fast I set it, it would still do its own thing.
2: All you um, can do is twirl your finger in front of the center console in
1: the air. Oh, I shut the I shut the gesture controls off.
2: Oh, did you? Oh, okay.
1: Yeah, because that was another like. I you know and that's uh, it is neat that there's like you can talk to it you can do the gestures or you can use the iDrive controller or the hard buttons so they're giving you all of those different ways to interface with it and like in terms of like uh human machine interface that's that's good practice you're you're giving people the way they want to control the thing um but yeah i i well maybe we're just not there you know in terms of how much technology we're putting into the car you know it was the 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 fact that I could get like weather reports from the weather channel and it was branded on the screen. I was like, that's, I don't know. I'm, I'm getting crusty, getting old and cranky. Um, but yeah, I mean, I I think that really the point that I came away was with, you know, us drivers who like driving, we're clearly a dwindling set and, and people now they, they want to be riders and that's where we're going with, with the autonomy. And this, this car has, has pretty good, um, semi-autonomous features. You know, I talked
2: about it last week. that the uh as long as the, the camera can see the lane markings.
1: Yeah the the automated cruise is just fantastic um and it, you know it watches your ass and that's that's good because there's a lot of other ways that you get distracted. Um so I can I can see where we're headed. We're not quite there yet and these these interim cars are going to be sort of you know something that that we wind up dispassionate about but uh the people that kind of just want the car to get them there Are they, you know, this may actually make a rider really happy. It's a comfortable place to be yeah, for, you know, you know. I,
2: I think, you know, the the majority of customers that buy these things, you know, or that even consider, you know, buying a premium car today, will love the way this thing works. You know, they'll, they'll get in and they'll drive, you know, they'll drive it and they'll, they'll be perfectly content with it. And, you know, that's all the more power to them. And you know, that's, that's fine for those customers. Um, yeah, you know, I'm I'm just not that customer. You know, I'm 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 I'd prefer, you know, I don't know if you've noticed on uh recent Mazdas, you know, when they put on the license plate frames now, uh, they used to have zoom zoom as their tagline. Now, yeah. Now it's driving matters. I like that. Yeah. And uh I I got to get one of those uh for my Miata.
1: I'm sure they'll give you one. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I'll, um, I'll, I'll go to the dealer and get one. Well, well, you
1: know, so, so this makes me think though, like, uh, and I think it was Alex Roy who who tweeted it a couple of weeks ago. Like, there's that new Nokia phone that's like the thirty three fourteen or something, and it's it's basically like a retro version, you know, of the the a lot of people's first cell phones, um, or just you know a non smartphone. It kind of makes me wonder, like, okay, well, so what would you have to do if you wanted to make a car that's in that that vein, like a simple car that's not a you know a highly highly technological car i mean you could you could buy a platform from a manufacturer that's like closing it out i'm sure uh chrysler would give you a really good deal on the uh the pmmk jeeps (laughs) (laughs) um and then you know you just buy all the pieces from from suppliers and, and like you return to that and um the assembled cars of the, the 20s and 30s, you know, the, all the brands that were out there that, you know, like the Jordan, right? Mm-hmm. Or the, uh, the Peerless, or all of these other brands that were out there making their thing from the same parts. You know, they were buying you know, engines from, from uh, Continental and Lycoming and stuff. But it's an interesting thought experiment that we probably should just not entertain this evening. Um, but speaking of riders, uh, we can get to Uber because they have, holy crap, if they've been in the news this week. The only I think the only thing they've been for the last four months, the, yeah, but especially this month, uh, this week. I mean, I think the only thing in the news more is the, the like the president Yeah,
2: <laughs> what's so, going on with Congress. So, yeah, Uber's board got together on Sunday for a seven hour marathon meeting to consider the report prepared by uh, former attorney general Eric Holder um on uh Uber's corporate culture um and uh, some changes were made um
1: uh, so. they they accepted everything right and from the 13 it was a 13 yeah. page report um and so the board actually like accepted all of their uh all the recommendations recommendations um in reading through the recommendations for it it seems like i'm just astonished they got this far without having that stuff in place it's just a lot of it seems like just sort of you know corporate responsibility 101
2: yeah well you know the thing is in in silicon valley especially um there's you know this sort of cult i mean we don't usually hear about it because most of the companies you know have not gotten anywhere near as influential or as big as uber has you know uber's got twelve thousand employees now but uh or you know maybe a yeah.
1: lot. N- n- none of them are drivers though, right? Yeah, none of them are the dri- right. None of
2: them are drivers. <laughs> um But uh, nod, nod, wink, wink. You know, I mean, if you know, if you look around, you know reports of similar kinds of problems, you know, occur in, especially in startups throughout Silicon Valley all the time. And even, even in some of the bigger companies, not to the same degree, I think as, as Uber, I mean, Uber, I think is a particularly extreme case um, in part, you know, because of uh, their CEO, Travis Kalanick and his whole persona and and the way he, he is, you know, who who he is, who he is and the way he run has run the company. Um, You know, but it's, you know the, this bro culture, um, yeah, you know, permeates the you know all the companies out there.
1: Well, some of it is got is the the Silicon Valley thing—the move fast and break things. Like I, I get it, and you know I'm sure the company grew really quickly, and it, 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 some of that was like unmanaged growth where they just didn't have these things in place. And they, you know, you're a group of firefighters, even though they have, you know, so many employees. Uh, you still wind up being a group of firefighters. You can, you to can move fast
2: and break things without being an asshole about it.
1: There is that. But yes. I don't think you can do that in Silicon Valley. Not from what I have seen. <laughs> Somebody give me an example. I,
2: I, don't, I don't have any
1: examples of companies like of people that I would like to have a chat, but they all seem like
2: douches. Uh, you know, I mean, I've I've never heard of anything quite like this. You know, coming from you know Larry Page and Sergey Brin. Uh, they're,
1: yeah, I they're just not living up to their "Don't be evil" thing. Like yeah. Google has its
2: own. Yeah, they, I mean, they have, the company has their own issues. Yeah, uh, you know, I think you know, nobody. I don't think there's anybody that's been quite like this. Not not to this degree. Uh, at least, certainly not on this scale. Uh, that's that's fair but you know so part of the the changes you know part of the you know the board's decision to accept these changes they had uh, a big all hands meeting on uh was it monday um and um you know they announced some of the changes they announced that uh travis kalanick uh is taking an indefinite leave of absence from the company i thought it was was it
1: three months or is it is it
2: indefinite time frame okay Uh, They just said it's an indefinite leave of absence. And even when he comes back, um, a lot of his responsibilities are going to be redistributed to other executives.
1: Yeah. That was like their number one first recommendation in the report was like, give him less to to oversee and, you know, put in an operations uh, officer Mm -hmm. uh, to handle those things that he's, you know, sort of doing poorly. Um, and, And some of that is like, the the hubris of being the the founder you just you want to be that hands-on person it's sometimes it's hard to delegate so i can see how that just evolved to a point where you, uh, everything rolls up to him because it always has and you you have to sometimes have a shock to the system to make that adjustment and say like now here's really how we we should be structured it'll be better trust us
2: yeah so you know i mean in this case you know they they didn't fire kalanick outright um, you know, and in part, you know, that's likely because they, they probably couldn't unless well, he, yeah. he wanted to go. Uh,
1: yeah. So I was going to say, like, do you think that they, they will, or do you think that he will eventually decide that he's, he's had enough? He'll tap out.
2: I, I have a feeling it might be the latter, um, because, you know, they basically, they, uh, uh, they can't fire him unless he wants to go. Unless he decides he wants to go, uh, because of the the, stru- the share structure they have. You know, he's uh, like a lot of companies out in the valley now. You know, they've got um, super voting shares. Um, you know, among you know for the the shareholders, especially for these privately, you know, both for privately held and for for public companies. You know, for example, uh, you know at Facebook, um, uh, Mark Zuckerberg you know, effectively controls, you know, even though he doesn't have, you know, 57% of the shares, he he controls 57% of the votes in the company. Um, and, you know, this, this is actually, it's relatively new in Silicon Valley, but it's actually not an entirely new concept. It was actually pioneered uh, by none other than Ford. It uh, went public back in the 1950s. Um, you know, they, they went public and they created a, a dual class share structure uh, with, Common share, class A shares are the ones sold to the public and class B shares can only be owned by the family. And well,
1: that's a sneaky way to sort of raise money without having to buy all this, sh- like, you know, retain that, that much of ownership. Like you can still maintain control, but you have more shares to sell at that point.
2: Right. You know, so because of know, the, Super the, Ford Ford, the Ford family, members of the Ford family own about two and a half percent of the shares of Ford Motor Company, but they have 40 percent of the votes. Um so, you know, similar things, you know, are now happening at a lot of Silicon Valley com- or, you know, a lot of tech companies. When uh, Snap went public a couple of months ago, um, you know, the shares they sold to the public actually have zero votes. You know, they, But
1: you get to say that you've invested in Snap.
2: Yeah. So, but, you know, so this, this is the reason why they can't fire Kalanick because he controls too many of the votes uh, on the board, even though he's just a single individual. And so unless he decides that he wants to go. And my guess is that if things start to get better over the next uh, few months while he's gone, um, there will be a lot of pressure on him to leave and and not come back to Uber.
1: I mean, at a certain point, Especially if you still own shares, you can just be like, you know what? I'm just going to sit back and count my money for now. Yeah. And, you know, Uber is so crazily overvalued, like just, just cash out, like before the bottom drops out of it, yeah. um, you know, because that's <laughs> still an issue that uh, I think is on the horizon at some point. You know, and they've, you know, they've had, this is the Eric Holder report, but they're also, you know, now um, being investigated for their handling of sensitive data uh, that that came out today um so that's another of thing they're gonna have to get through and i think though th- these moves are this is this is uber's survival play um if they ever want to sort of grow and mature as a company and become you know really grown-ups um they have to do this stuff and they have to do it now and it it's it has the potential and it it positions them very well to, you know, continue to be a, a, a going concern. Uh, the, these all seem like good moves, like looking at it from a, a cold perspective or, a, you know, it's just a sort of business perspective. These are the things that me as an investor, I would be pleased with, uh, you know, and, you know, you get rid of, of some of the toxic culture. There was the the board member who shot his mouth off, who said that like women talk too much
2: or something. Yeah, David Bonderman during during this meeting on Monday, uh, uh, Ariana Huffington, who's also on the board. And yeah, she comes whom
1: I do not like, by the way, we'll just put I'm that not, out there.
2: I'm not a fan
1: of Ms. Huffington she, either. She, she talks about how much sleep she gets. That's great. I'm surprised she can sleep at night, given how she, she profited from other people's work. She didn't pay them for yeah, exactly. I just had to get that off my chest. <laughs> now we can move on.
2: Regardless, <laughs> you know, she made, she made a comment, you know, the data shows that once you've got one woman on the board of a company, it's a lot easier to get a second and third and fourth, um, which is true. Uh, but then, uh, Board member uh, David Bonderman piped up with some ridiculous comment about, uh, you know, what what the data shows is when you get two women on the board, you get a lot more talking. Yeah, and, um, he deservedly got a lot of criticism for that and <clears throat> later in the day ended up resigning from the board uh, because of it.
1: I mean, I'm all for the uh, impolitic joke, uh, but sometimes and and given that situation, like, man, just just bite your tongue like I have I have a, I have a, a history of, of not biting my tongue and I just I can't fathom how you can you can be in that position at that company under these circumstances and shoot your mouth off like that.
2: Given well, everything that I mean, Uber has done that's, that's exactly the kind of thing that has allowed this toxic culture to permeate um, the company. You know, to permeate Uber over the last seven years is because people like Bonderman allowed it to happen. You know, they did yeah. nothing to to rein in Kalanick and his his worst impulses.
1: Yeah, I mean, and I saw somewhere, too, there was uh, maybe it was a CNN report where some of it was like they'd roll their eyes and they just say, you know, like, it's just it's just Travis being Travis. But, you know, the company is booming and it's it's got even even
2: if it is Travis being Travis, there's no excuse for anybody behaving like that anywhere in any company. And, you know, if if he's you know, if he can't, you know, show a little bit of restraint, a little bit of self-control and you know behave better, then he shouldn't be running a company like that.
1: Oh, I, I agree. And I think that, um, you know, with a diminished role, yeah, with a diminished role and with the changes they're making, like they're, they're really, they're, they're making the decisions and the moves to really ensure that the long-term, uh, survival of Uber, uh, like I said, and I think that, I think that it's actually going to, to work out for them, um, if they can, stick to it yeah. and, and sort of weather the storm. They, they're, they're going to have to get their data policy together. I mean, we, and some of that is it's, it's unexcusable ignorance. You know, we have a, a, a client much smaller scale, but they're dealing with uh, personally identifiable information on, you know, web forms. And it's like, guys, you, you have to take care of this and we're not taking care of it for you. And you, you must do it because the criminal, the penalties are criminal. So <laughs> you really ought to get your data policy together like now um, before we move forward with our project. Um, and, and, you know, for them to not, it, you know, for Uber to not have a handle on, on PII or, uh, you know, just more sensitive data or even just, you know, where, where employees have used the the, the information to, to spy on people um, is that that's just inexcusable and that needs to stop and there needs to be real controls put on that. Um, and, and I, I have, for looking at it today, uh, I have faith that they'll at least try. So
2: I, we'll see what next week so, brings. Yeah. For, you know, for the sake of the 12,000 people that work there, you know, I hope that. Are they
1: that big? Holy crap. Yeah. I, I mean.
2: I, I don't know what they all do, but. <laughs>
1: <laughs> they do stuff. Yeah. They play ping pong and uh, foosball.
2: Yeah, probably.
1: Um, yeah. So. All right. Well, so to somewhat shift gears, um we found out as well that Apple has decided that uh, they they were working on a car, and now they're just kind of working on being a supplier. They decided, like you know, we don't we don't actually want to make a car.
2: Well, we we're not exactly sure for certain what they're working on. What happened was yesterday, Tim Cook, their Apple CEO, finally acknowledged that they're working on automated driving systems which does not necessarily mean they're working on a car.
1: Yeah. I, so I took away that they had been working on it and they were like, yeah, that's too hard. Um, I, or,
2: I, I suspect that they at least investigated it. Yeah. They and and get building complete cars and decided that that wasn't worth it. But I don't, I don't see Apple being a supplier either. Really? Yeah. Well, I mean, think about, think about the way Apple does all their other business. You know, they like to control everything they do not want to be uh you know part part of the reason why you know things have not worked out great with apple carplay is because car makers don't want to cede that control to apple over the dashboard and over you know data from the vehicle um they you know a- apple is a company that likes to control everything about the user experience with their products so they control the software they control the hardware they control the distribution um you know they they decide what apps you can load on your iPhone or on your iPad. Um, you, you can't just, you know, randomly load any apps you want from any source. Uh, so, you know, why, given the, the nature of the way they conduct the rest of their business, why would they want to become a supplier to the auto industry? even for something like autonomous driving software.
1: Because they, they are looking at ways for their brand to survive. You know, you're only going to sell so many more iPhones. Uh, Like that market's cooling off. Everybody who wants one tends to have one and you can only make them obsolete, you know, and since such a cadence.
2: Right. Um, How much branding do you see on your car for the suppliers that make the parts that go in there?
1: Well now, correct. But, um, you know, you talk about Apple, you know, uh, apple carplay right like what if the whole infotainment system was apple what if the what if it was you know apple branded automated driving and it was really good you know and and so you would you would then shop for cars that had the apple autonomy feature
2: why why would an automaker want to hand over that level of control to apple
1: because it it's a selling point for them it gets butts and seats right mm-hmm. like you know um it, it's it's the halo effect like the hyundai has Apple autonomy in its cars, you know, it's, it's a draw.
2: It's I, I, my, my feeling is that it's actually going to be the opposite. I don't think Apple's going to be the supplier. I think Apple's going to be the OEM and car makers, one or more car makers are going to end up being the tier one suppliers to Apple and also to Waymo. So, well, so Wayne was an
1: interesting uh, case, too, because they actually built that silly little car and then they they're they're working on the next gen of it and they're just partnering with um, FCA.
2: Right. Well, the you know, the the little car, the little pod, which they called the Firefly, you know, they only built uh, about 30 of those, you know, and they were they were never intended as, you know, production thing. I mean, you know, their little tube frame, low speed electric vehicles uh, with fiberglass bodies. And, you know, if you've ever seen one up close, you know, after they. After they've spent some some time driving around on the roads, you know they they tend to have a lot of cracks in the bodywork. You know, it was never it was always meant as nothing more than a development platform for their software and also their their sensing hardware, uh, which they designed and developed on that vehicle. So, I think the you know what you know the the relationship that Waymo has today with Fiat Chrysler is Fiat Chrysler is essentially a tier one supplier to Waymo, you know, it, for those that don't work in the auto industry, you know, the tier one suppliers are the supply, you know, the supplier, you know, you have the, the manufacturer is the one whose branding goes on the vehicle, the tier one, you know, you have various levels of suppliers. The tier ones are the ones that supply components and systems directly to the manufacturer to the, does the final assembly and sells the vehicle and you know so in in the traditional auto industry that's companies like Bosch and Continental and Delphi and Denso you know and they get whole you know a lot of parts from tier 2 tier 3 tier 4 suppliers and they integrate those parts and you know sell You know, so, you know, for example, Bosch will get um, chips from one company and um, motors and other pieces from other companies. They'll integrate that into a stability control system and sell it to an automaker. And then the automaker installs it in the vehicle and sells that vehicle. In the case of Waymo and Fiat Chrysler. uh, Waymo doesn't want to they don't want to be a a traditional supplier to the auto industry. They want to control the automated driving experience, including providing the services to customers, to consumers. And so they want to retain control of the software, the sensors, the compute platform and all the data that's generated by their vehicles. The only way they can do that is if they partner with OEMs that are willing to sell them a vehicle platform. In that scenario, the OEM or the, the automaker Becomes a tier one supplier to Waymo because they they are essentially selling one giant subsystem to Waymo, which is the vehicle. And then Waymo installs their their part of it on there and and makes the services available to consumers. I think Apple is probably going to go down the same path. So what we'll end up seeing is something that's app, an Apple branded mobility service. It'll probably be a premium mobility service. Um, you know, it won't be a, a low end system like, you know, Uber pool or uh, Lyft line or something like that. It'll be premium services, you know, more more likely something where you pay a, a flat monthly subscription fee and have access to vehicles whenever you need it. That sort of thing. It'll you know it'll be more more expensive, but you'll have a better user experience, uh, things like that. And I think that's the scenario that they're going to take, and they will partner. You know, they'll find a, a car maker that doesn't have the ability or the expertise to design. Uh, and develop autonomous driving systems on their own. And they may be struggling, you know, overall and, you know, have them build, uh, vehicles, you know, to Apple specs and, and they'll, then they'll install the autonomous stuff on there and make the services available.
1: So it's not, it's not Apple building their own cars. It's Apple providing customers to this, this mobility service, but what automaker doesn't have, um, this autonomous capability or a supplier or tier one that can give it to them. Fiat Chrysler,
2: Mazda, Mitsubishi.
1: Um, you know, they're, you don't think Fiat Chrysler has uh, a tier one that's ready to, to partner with them to, to, uh,
2: well, they haven't really done a whole lot. Uh, certainly nothing that we've seen yet, you know, in terms of autonomous vehicle development, I'm, and I'm sure they've got some experiments going on, but there's nothing notable that they've done. You know, they, they you know, they have not that's not been a primary concern of theirs up to this point uh which i think is part of the reason why they decided to work with waymo on this project with the pacifica minivans um you know because they they see that as a as a market for them you know to sell vehicles to companies like waymo
1: i mean i guess that's that's fair i'm Just surprising, I guess, for for, Fiat Chrysler, given the rest of their product mix and sort of where they are in the market, it makes sense for them to consider partnering up with sort of the biggest brand you can find, Uh, you know, again, that halo effect with with
2: Apple. You know, the other option, too, besides, you know, an automaker uh, is. You know, it could be, you know, a contract manufacturer like Magna or Valmet, you know, or, you know, there's a few other companies that do this sort of thing. It's also possible, you know, that they could partner with a Chinese OEM, a Chinese manufacturer.
1: Well, that's that's true. Yeah.
2: And then, you know, much like they work with Foxconn, you know, they give them the specs, you know, they do the design, give them the specs and have them do all the manufacturing for them. And, you know, then get them to, you know, to where they need to be, Um, you know, that I think that's the kind of model that they would work with, you know, so they could they could pick one of the Chinese companies and use their manufacturing capabilities to build build bespoke vehicles for them.
1: And you don't think that they're terribly worried about intellectual property theft or anything like that with dealing with the Chinese manufacturer
2: no, uh, you know, because I think the, the core, the core stuff, you know, the, the autonomous software um, and the sensors and things like that, uh, and that, um, you know, they will, you know, that stuff they'll keep to themselves, you know, it, let's put it this way, it will, you know, it's, it, it won't be, it's not like they're going to be handing over source code to whoever's manufacturing it, you know, they'll give them binaries to load on there, or they'll even do that part themselves.
1: Yeah. All right. I mean, that's that's sort of the next big frontier, right, is uh, who which one of these tech giants, which is arguably sort of the most robust sector, uh, most talked about sort of industry that we have other than automotive. You know, automotive has been for 100 years. That's been sort of like the pinnacle uh, you know, they they make these very complicated things, and it sort of uses all of the trades and, and all of these sort of our our engineering and manufacturing might and talent, and and so we're we're eventually soon going to see these these two things uh, sort of converge: the software uh, or the, the the world that came out of software and and the valley, and and you know, hitting the old line sort of Detroit folks, and and. I think there's going to be a positive from it as, as much as uh, I've sort of sounded kind of negative over the last, I don't know, 27 podcasts. Um, It's, it's going to be really fascinating to see like how they figure out how to, you know, like that, that symbiotic relationship
2: is going to be really interesting. I, I did a little talk on this at a conference last month. um, And I, I also uh, wrote an article about It, They, you know, circling back around to the discussion earlier about, you know, do driver driver's cars matter? You know, part of the reason why vehicles today are so good and, you know, why driver's cars you know probably don't matter as much as they used to is because of the relationship that there's been between the auto industry and Silicon Valley for going on 40 years now. Uh, You know, the. This is, um, you know, this this is not a a new relationship, you know, ever since the 1970s, when the auto industry started applying microprocessors to control elements on the vehicle, you know, starting with emission controls and engine controls and now, you know, controlling just about everything with chips and software, you know, the reason why the industry has done as well as it has and why we have cars today that perform to the level that they do is because of the the collaboration between Silicon Valley and the industry. You know, the the auto industry has taken you know the, the the creations from the tech industry, incorporated those into cars, and that's why they're as powerful and as clean and as efficient and handle as well. But you know, at the same time, they're also just not as interesting anymore.
1: Yeah, well, computers aren't as interesting anymore either. When you think about that's it, that's true. I mean, the yeah. the the thrill of building your own Altair is no longer there, right?
2: And an appliance is never as interesting as something that you put together or maintain on your own. Yeah. And computers today largely are appliances. They, they're like unless, unless you're running desktop Linux. Yeah, yeah, but then you're just a weirdo.
1: I mean, they, they're <laughs> like they are they're not even appliances. They're they're like a disposable commodity. They're like Dixie cups. Yeah. Um when I think about uh, you know, the, the last desktop that I built, like it became obsolete really fast and there's no way I'm going to upgrade that. I'm just going to buy like one of the, the little Intel, like sort of squares that's, you know. The Nux. Yeah. I mean, it's so Nux. tiny and it's so powerful and it's, it's uh, or there's even there's even smaller ones. There's a, there's a computer, a full Windows computer that's like roughly the size of an iPhone 6 Plus.
2: I, I have two of those. I have one of them sitting in front of me right now Uh, That I use for some basic tasks. And I have another one that's hooked up to the TV in the living room that acts as a media server. Yeah, it's like the is it the
1: kangaroo or something?
2: Yeah, kangaroo. Ninety nine bucks. Those are crazy. And, you know, plug in a two terabyte, you know, um, USB drive, you know, with a whole bunch of media files on there. Right. And use that as a, you know, serves up media to the rest of the house.
1: And when it dies, you just throw it away (laughs) like you're not. It's a hundred dollar thing. Like and I hate saying that because this, first of all, it's full of like silicon and uh, heavy metals and, uh, you know, uh, uh, copper and batteries, um, you know, all of those things. But it's like, again, it's uh, manufacturing and tech is friggin amazing. Um, and, yeah. and it's, you
2: know, yeah it's, it's got us to where we are in the auto industry today. I mean, it's been, you know, at the core of, of my career for 27 years now.
1: Yeah. Seems speaking
2: of, speaking of which, seems
1: like it's been we, lucrative.
2: Yeah. Why, why don't we, why don't we get into, uh, uh, some of the questions that, uh, we had come in, uh, through Twitter and Facebook today. One of which is related to uh, my last comment there. Uh, let's see. Oh, uh, this must've been a Facebook question. Yeah, it was a Facebook question uh, from Jarrett asking us uh, asking uh, where did I work as an engineer and what vehicles I worked on and what did you enjoy and what did you hate? Um, so uh, my my most of my engineering career I, I did I was a, during when I was studying engineering as a co-op student, I worked at GM of Canada in St. Catharines. And after graduation, I went to work for Del, what was then Delco Moraine NDH um, at uh, um, the GM Milford Proving Grounds. Uh, working on ABS systems there. <clears throat> and uh, amazingly, you know, the day I walked in, the first assignment I was given was to work on the ABS system for the Lotus M100 Alon um that was that was that was the front
1: wheel drive along that uh lotus put out lots of pressure this is like no no front wheel drive is really it's superior it's
2: so good um you know uh, if you got in and drove one of those you would never guess it was a front wheel (laughs) no
1: i I, and i want to say i've never driven one of those and i'm sure it was great because it was lotus also didn't kia actually buy that whole car and produce it
2: yeah. Um, Lotus, as it turned out, that project, um, you know, just as we were on the verge of going to production in 1991 uh, with that ABS system on that car. Um, Lotus was losing so much money on every one of those that they built. decided <laughs> They just cancel the whole program and they stopped production of the Elan. And then two years later, they sold all the tooling to Kia and they shipped it all to South Korea and they built them there uh they They made some minor tweaks to the bodywork and replaced the Isuzu engine with a Kia engine uh, and sold those mostly in Korea for about another four or five years um and so there's these odd Korean built lotus salons you know that are running around and you can they pop up every once in a while, but not very often
1: yeah I
2: think they use like an Isuzu engine stuff i I don't know anyway well the 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 lotus ones had an Isuzu engine right. GM owned Lotus and Isuzu at the time, or had a majority stake in Isuzu at the time. Um, And so from there, I went to, uh, to Kelsey Hayes. uh, And then over the following 16 years, through a couple of mergers and acquisitions, um, by the time I left, it was TRW Automotive. And I worked on slip control and uh, electro, you know, electro hydraulic brake systems and other cool stuff there before i left in 2007 so, so that was my engineering career
1: what was did you so 2007 was that when you joined autoblog or did you join autoblog before you left uh
2: there was a slight overlap there uh i started writing doing some part-time stuff for autoblog in late 06 um and then in 2007 i got an opportunity to write full-time uh with another publication that is now defunct uh called green fuels forecast um, and so I went there, uh, and did that and auto blog for the next, uh, three years.
1: See, I think we all joined up on AutoBlog around the same time. Like Alex Nunez, Chris Shunk, me, we were all to 2006, maybe late 2005. Uh,
2: yeah, we, we had a whole bunch of new people that came in right around that time. Uh, I think Alex joined in, in early 06. Yeah. Um, Damon was there, um,
1: I was late. Oh, six. I was like, uh, November. Um,
2: so yeah, it's I think I started in September.
1: Yeah. See, we're all, we're all, (laughs) none of us work there anymore.
2: Yeah. I don't, uh, I think, yeah, I think the, the, one of the last people that was there when I was there is Jeremy Korzanowski. Um, and he's one of the last, is he uh, remaining still there?
1: Yeah, I, I can't remember. Like <laughs> Motor One snagged so many of them because NAF and yeah,
2: he's still there. Yeah. <laughs> Sebastian, Sebastian Blanco, who was my editor on Autoblog Green, uh, went to Motor One uh, earlier this year, and most of the rest of the crew uh left over the course yeah. of the past year year and a half.
1: I mean it's, it's not it's not really it's not bad blood it's just sort of turnover in the industry. Um mm-hmm. you know and like even now too Mike Austin who did yeoman's work over the last couple of years uh sort of g- changing the the character and tone and and uh everything for autoblog he left and and I saw that uh you invited him on the podcast so hopefully we can get him soon. Uh not that he wasn't invited before but
2: Yeah. We'll we'll, we'll get him on here uh, pretty soon I hope. Um Well, uh, he he lives not far from me here, so uh, hopefully uh, we can get something lined up in the next few weeks uh, when he's ready to talk about what he's doing next.
1: Good, good. Uh, So what was your favorite car that you worked on? I'm sure it wasn't that Lotus as good as it was.
2: Uh, Actually, it was another Lotus Um, during that that same year and a half. I was there at uh, Delco. uh, I had the opportunity, in addition to the Elan, uh, to work on the ABS. Uh, We did some modifications to the ABS for the uh, Lotus Esprit race program that was going on at that time, in the Pirelli World Challenge. Uh, so the the Lotus Esprit X180Rs that were running uh, with drivers such as a, a certain Peel Newman, uh, Doc Bundy, <laughs> uh, and uh, Bobby Carradine were all racing those cars. And you know they at first they weren't happy with the performance of the ABS. So um, the team sent one of the previous year's cars up to Milford, and myself and uh, Arnie Speaker. Uh, one of my colleagues there, um, but uh, two three nights a week uh, after hours, we would take that out to Black Lake at uh, uh, at Milford and set up a an autocross course out there and spend a few hours tweaking the software.
1: Uh, that sucks. Changes sounds like it sucked.
2: Uh, yeah, it it was terrible, but somebody had to do it. And then you know we got to go to a few races supporting the uh, the team, uh, you know, with with updated software. So
1: that's really cool um yeah. so now the flip side is um what did you hate i'm gonna guess it was like the beretta uh
2: no i never worked uh, on that, that was that. too late too uh, early for you okay well, probably one of the worst vehicles I, well it was there they were working on it at the time it's just it wasn't something that i worked on um probably one of the most bizarre vehicles i drove uh gm was looking at you remember the uh uh, the dustbuster minivans. Oh yeah, Trans. Yeah, the GM yeah, tens. The uh, yeah, yeah, they they were going to ship those to uh, to Europe and sell them as Opals.
1: <laughs> and <laughs>
2: but, you know, over here they were only available with a V six engine and an automatic transmission. Uh, but that was obviously not a non starter for the European market. So they had a mule that was set up uh, with the quad four four cylinder engine. You remember that terrible? Um, it was very
1: powerful. It was also like sort of. I can't even, it, it vibrated a lot. It was powerful, but yes. unrefined. Yeah. And that engine was actually amazing. It made 180 horsepower in like no, it was, it was, 1988. It was very, very powerful for its time. It was it was basically uh, it, an yeah, Offenhauser yeah. head design. Yeah. It wasn't, it was yeah. GM, but it was like, if you looked at the Offy 4, it's pretty much a quad 4. Um, yeah. From their design. So, anyway, so. Uh,
2: yeah, quad, quad 4 with a five-speed manual and a, and a Dustbuster minivan.
1: That doesn't sound horrible, though. Like it sounds entertaining.
2: <sighs>
1: mm. I mean, it's it's a horrible in a good way.
2: It's interesting. Yeah, certainly. I think I think probably the the most horrible vehicle though is probably the Isuzu Rodeo. The Rodeo. Uh, those things were so <laughs> utterly unstable. I mean, it, those cars, those trucks, never should have been sold to the public. Did you ever roll one? We. Uh I came very very close to rolling one one time uh when I was te- doing some testing doing some split mu testing uh but I think over the course of a couple of years I think between my various colleagues I think we rolled about six or seven Jesus
1: so and the split mu is like that's where you have half of the, the so half of the wheels one side is on dry one, pavement
2: one, one side on dry pavement one side on you know slick pavement um something slick yeah. you know either wet tiles or ice um, and I came very, very close to rolling one. Um, and like I say, several of my friends, several of my colleagues did roll them at various times over the course of a couple of years. In fact, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll post one of the pictures with this, uh, <laughs> post tomorrow.
1: That sounds ex- exciting. Uh, a, uh,
2: picture, picture of an upside down, uh, rodeo from, uh, Northern Sweden in, uh,
1: 1993. Awesome. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, those, I'm surprised you didn't like the GM 10s. I'm not. I'm being sarcastic. But I heard that they, they were they had uh, mules with with small blocks in them for a
2: very long time before they actually decided to. There, yeah, there were there were there were a few um, uh, Lumina Coupe mules with uh, small block V8s in them.
1: And I'm sure they were fantastic and they should have sold them because uh, it, the the Lumina otherwise was not good. <laughs> <laughs>
2: I I never had the opportunity to drive one or even ride in one but um they were um
1: I mean for the day cuz like so the Lumina had what the 3.4 the, the word
2: the word torque steer.
1: Yeah, I guess I guess that's true. Um cuz I'm, I'm trying to think like they had the 3.4 I don't know if you could get the 3.800 in the Lumina probably eventually.
2: Yeah, what well, that wasn't that didn't come to a
1: um but yeah so that like so it was the GM10 and it became the W platform and the W platform lasted I mean we just saw the last gas not too long ago but uh they eventually did put a v8 in it um
2: yeah it did eventually get it.
1: uh in the it took the, a long time so, yeah the last bonneville and
2: uh it would, they, in in 1990-91 they were evaluating it evaluating the v8 as a potential replacement for the 3.4 liter twin cam These,
1: oh yeah the twin dual cam
2: yes yes yeah uh, because that engine was so expensive and so complex to build um and nobody thought very highly of it you know so they figured well we can get as much power out of the v8 and you know it'll be a lot cheaper and it was actually a smaller package because the the way the cylinder heads and cam carriers were designed on the v6 the thing was actually pretty huge
1: yeah but anyway well non nostalgia i never worked on any cars like that i didn't do anything interesting with my life i went to film school so you have all the best
2: stuff. Oh, I sorry. There's there's one more that I got to tell you about. Uh when I when I did go to Kelsey Hayes, um the first winter I was working there. Um we had uh we were working on um what the uh early stages of the Ford Win uh the Ford minivan program which eventually became the Windstar. Those were crappy so when, vans. Well yeah, <laughs> when I when I first arrived, um up in International Falls in uh, like November of ninety one or early December of ninety one, uh, when I first went to work there, <clears throat> uh, I I walked out of the airport in International Falls because you know we did some of our testing on the the taxiway there. We used the, ta- the taxiway for dry pavement testing, and then we did our ice and snow testing out on our frozen lake. And I walked out of the the airport building where the where the garage was, and I saw this white. Dodge caravan. And I'm looking at it and something didn't seem quite right about it, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it until I got up close to it. And I realized that what they had done was they, they built six of these mules that they had taken caravan body shells and they sent them over to Roush engineering to, to build these things. And uh, because they wanted to put for the Ford 3.8 liter V six in there at the time Chrysler was using the Mitsubishi um, three liter V six was a, which was a 60 degree engine. The Ford 3.8 was significantly wider because it was a 90 degree V six. So what they did was they spliced in like six inches in the front uh, and like right behind the, the wheel arch. So the nose was like six inches longer than a standard, Chrysler minivan and when you got up close, you know, these things were white. When you got up close, you could see the seam where they spot welded it all together. And it was really strange looking. <laughs> and then and then at the back, um, you know, it had uh a Ford rear axle on there. Uh so the the track was different from the you know, from the standard uh Chrysler minivan. So the whole thing just looked a little peculiar. And then when you get inside, for some reason they decided they you know, they they put the um, the then current uh, Taurus dashboard in it, and because of where the fire where the steering column came through the firewall on the uh, the, the Chrysler body shell, it didn't line up with the instrument cluster on the um, the Taurus um, instrument panel. So the steering wheel was offset about four inches to one side, so it blocked half of the steer, the speedometer. It, well, that sounds it was just, just so terrible. <laughs> yeah, I could go on about some other things, but we'll, let's let's move on um uh, to uh the the Hyundai Kona uh which uh was revealed today in Korea or maybe it was yesterday.
1: I think it was yesterday, but
2: e- either way, um
1: so reaction was split on this. Uh it's some people like it. Uh I saw a lot more people who didn't like it and who immediately compared it to the Jeep Cherokee because it it sort of picks up some of the cues. It has the high mounted indicator lamps and, and lower headlights. Um, but I, I don't know. I mean, I think it's uh, it's distinctive. It's uh, it shares the platform with the Kia Nero, right?
2: I don't think so. Oh. I think it's actually based on the Elantra um, platform. OK, or or maybe may actually might be it might even be a smaller one than that. I don't think it's based on the Nero platform.
1: Well, either way, I think it's it's neat Um I'm glad that they're doing something with some personality. We just got done bitching that nothing has personality anymore. So uh, yeah, it may look a little weird. The Cherokee looked a little weird to me when I first saw it too. But we've all kind of normalized to that now. Um,
2: yeah. yeah, and and uh, you know it will be coming to the U.S. Uh, in 2018. Um, back uh, when the current Tucson was launched a couple of years ago, I asked uh, then Hyundai America CEO Dave Zakowski if they were going to do. A B segment crossover, uh, since you know they were really starting to take off at that point, and he did say, "Yeah, but it's not coming for a couple of years. So it's it's coming in 2018, um, and uh, it it'll be available here uh, probably with the 1.4 liter turbo that is in the uh, like the Elantra Eco and some of the other current small uh, Hyundai and Kia cars."
1: Yeah, and so they're saying actually it's a uh, it's an all new small pl- SUV platform. So we'll, okay. we'll probably see it um, under other things or, or it may be, uh, you know, sort of, I'm sure there will be a Kia variant of this as well with different styling. It may also be that sort of like press release hyperbole where you say it's an all new platform when it's really like basically the same platform. They just just play with the wheelbase.
2: There's, there's probably some shared componentry, you know, with other vehicles, um, and you know, a lot of new stuff as well. So like the floor pan is probably new, but you know, there's probably a lot of shared, um, suspension architecture and things like that.
1: Yeah, and, and honestly, like, look at this car as, as sort of a harbinger for um, other Hyundai's to come. It's going to sort of set a stylistic direction, maybe not quite as bold for other Kias, but they're good. I mean, Hyundai's, but they're going to pick up some of these these stylistic elements uh, because you have to remember that that Hyundai has a very capable design director, and uh, they're if you look across their lineup, they're very good at giving that family look. Uh, to all the cars and and so expect that if this one car comes out with it it's probably going to wind up sort of infused in the other vehicles across the lineup um
2: and you know the hyundai family look is evolving too you know i mean for for besides the kona you know the look that uh we see on the uh, the upcoming um elantra sport the, the hatchback version of the elantra that's launching later this summer um you know it's it's a more aggressive bolder look than the current generation of uh, of hyundais yeah so
1: i i think it's interesting and it's i mean this is where this is where all the heat is in the market anyway um you know compact crossovers um where it's going to compete with stuff uh like the toyota chr which is terrible <laughs> the Honda hrv uh and the fiat 500x maybe um which seems a little bigger, but what do I know? Uh, so yeah, I mean, good for them. They're bringing something with some personality to market. I like personality. Personnel. My own more than anybody. Sorry. <laughs> uh, so we, we, we got some questions on Twitter as well. Uh, unless there's more Facebook uh,
2: before, before, uh, yeah, there, there was a oh. more from, uh, from you- Facebook as well. Um, let's see, uh, Chuck Goolsby, uh, had a, a long rant uh, about. Uh, we should talk to
1: Chuck. Chuck, I think, worked in the data center at Facebook. I bet he has some stories.
2: Uh, I know he worked at Rack. Well, maybe it was Rack. Anyway. Not sure about. Yeah. yeah, I'm not sure about Facebook. I bet he's freaked um, out
1: now that he knows what we know about him. I know that his dad had an E-type. Well, he, 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 he,
2: he, he's acknowledged that online, so I don't yeah. think there's anything to be freaked out about. Uh, Just so you know, yeah. Chuck, we creep. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we just read what That's you right. post, you know, you don't, you don't want people to know about it. Don't post right. about it. Uh, oh yeah. So he, he had, uh, uh, he had a post, uh, ranting about autonomous vehicles. Uh, I'll just read the beginning of it here. Um, If there's any justice in the world or at least uh, delicious irony, the first human being uh, killed by an autonomous vehicle will be a Silicon Valley software engineer riding a twenty seven thousand dollar carbon fiber bicycle on Page Mill Road. Uh, I I think. Uh, which is in Silicon Valley uh, near uh, Sand Hill Road where all the VCs hang out. Um, the uncanny valley between dis- between adaptive cruise control and full autonomy is going to be filled with dead and injured people, tort lawyers, and billions of dollars in liability claims. It'll kill this idea of autonomous vehicles as dead as the flying car, and nobody will be more shocked than the Silicon Valley software engineers, all because they honestly believe that coding away their uh, miserable commute on the 101 is as easy as building systems to share cat videos. You- <laughs> never died from a cat video.
1: you know he makes a good point and I, I think that uh, being a fan of the sort of elegant solution um you don't need to build an internet connected self-driving car to solve this problem just work from home for Christ's sake for a lot of this stuff yeah. uh, I mean Apple just no, they just opened their giant spaceship building which uses how much energy and has how many parking spaces where they could have just had people work from home
2: well the- Granted, you know it's all the the place is also covered with solar cells, and you know which pretty much self.
1: Yeah, I mean solar cells, which are full of what and cost how much in in resources and, and energy to make.
2: Yeah.
1: Well, I'm just being a jerk uh, now. Uh, <laughs> yeah.
2: But um, you know, to to a degree, I agree with Chuck. Uh, but I think you know, I think he's opinion is maybe a little bit over. I think, I think Chuck Um, needs to, there there are, there are going to be some, some fatalities and, and some lawsuits and, you know, that's probably going to help to make the technology better. um, Because I think we do need to move in this direction. Um, You know, I think, you know, a lot of, a lot of the people in Silicon Valley are probably in for a very rude awakening over the next few years uh, thinking that, you know, this stuff is going to be a lot easier than it will be. Uh, I think, you know, the, the incumbent auto industry has a, a much clearer vision of how tough this is actually going to be. And, you know, that, you know, they're like, you know, they're working very aggressively, but I think that they're also, uh, they they've been burned enough times that hopefully they will, know what not to do and you know not jump up prematurely with too much of this yeah i mean we're already seeing that happen and you know in terms of the
1: lawyer comment like yes everybody loves to hate lawyers uh and this is one of the lines that because i do a lot of work with lawyers um you know nobody wants a lawyer until they need one you know and then uh you know from the interview with uh ralph nader that i did about unsafe at any speed too there's always two sides to that. And like, we have stuff that doesn't kill us because, you know, people were harmed and injured and, and it killed because of, you know, nobody actually considered safety or they, it was, you know, wanton disregard and sort of dereliction of duty. Uh, they, they knew it was unsafe and they made it anyway. Um, you know, or they, you know, like brakes had asbestos in them for years. And, and they've, and they've done stuff you know. like
2: that, you know, even relatively recently, you know, the whole, you know, both the, the Takata airbag yeah. situation um, and also the um, the G, big GM ignition switch. Right yeah. Now. At least, it, you know, at GM that actually did make a difference, um, you know, in terms of how they're rolling out uh, Super Cruise. And, you know, we talked about that a few episodes back and you can go back and listen to that. I'm not going to rehash that whole thing, but it, it, it has made an impact at GM and hopefully it will at, at these other companies as well. I, I think it I think it will. I think you know, from, you know, I talk to a lot of these, these companies, you know, as part of my day job now as an, as an analyst um, with Navigant Research, you know, looking at mobility and autonomous vehicles and, and connect, connected vehicles. And they, you know, the car makers at least, and the, the, the traditional suppliers seem very much aware of the, the potential safety risks. And, you know, they are trying to mitigate those to the, to the degree that they can.
1: Yeah. So, we, we, it's, they're funny jokes, but, you know, they, they, yeah. they, do, they do help you out. You know, your baby doesn't get his head stuck in the bars of the uh, crib anymore because they've figured right. things out. Some, somebody had to get hurt for that to happen. So think of that.
2: So we, uh, we also had a couple of comments from uh, Jonathan Brown uh, asking about the model, Tesla Model 3. Uh, will performance variants challenge street cred of the BMW M3? Um, are you personally disappointed uh, that Musk stated no press vehicles for testing? Uh, no. We're always disappointed. <laughs> we're always, I think we're always somewhat disappointed when car companies, you know, don't put out uh, press vehicles. But then Tesla has uh, never put out earlier, press vehicles.
1: though. Really. Yeah,
2: they, they've they never had traditional press fleets. You know, basically, you know, you have to kind of go and, and beg on hands and knees to uh, to get a press vehicle out of them or, you know, just ask really nice. Um, and sometimes if you know, if they're not too pissed at you about something that you wrote somewhere, then they might loan you one for a yeah. few days. Um and then uh as far as the performance variants, uh, you know, the there will probably be performance variants of the Tesla Model 3 um that you know are quicker than an M3. Um, but I think you know they will also have less character, you know, even, even though an M3 doesn't have as much character today as it did 20 years ago. Um, I think you know the m3 or the 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 model three will probably be even less you know and i think you know driving enthusiasts will you know based on what we've seen of the interior of the model three they probably won't be thrilled with it
1: well i think what you're going to find is that the the model three is a more extreme example of that dichotomy between sort of uh price and uh premium like price and and premium outfitting you know the, the the tesla like the model s right it has cultivated this 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 very uh sort of premium image um and, and you know the, right. the the design is very nice and that's
2: part of the reason that's part of the reason why we're also not going to see performance variants or you know longer range variants of the model three uh for a while yet even after they launch because the uh, they want to maintain that gap to the model s because they You know, over the last several months, you know, Elon's been making comments about, you know, the Model 3 is not just a a new generation of uh, the S. It's it's a more of a mainstream car. And, you know, they still want to sell S's because, you know, they have they know they're going to have much higher margins on those than they than they will on the Model 3, even though they still lose money on them. You know, they, they need those for the revenue. They need to get the revenue from those. Parts.
1: Well, and and if you make it, yeah. you know, too much of a performance car, it's going to limit range. And, and range is going to be a big issue with the Model 3, just given sort of where it's going to be priced. And, uh, yeah. you know, that's going to be more important. You're going to want to put more batteries into that thing than you are, uh, you know, any other sort of concern. Um, cause that's the most expensive part of it. And that's also the most crucial part of it because you're getting that price down to a point now where, um, buyers who aren't early adopters and who aren't willing to deal with sort of the ups and downs of owning an electric vehicle and being, a, uh, uh, you know, sort uh, of the tip of the spear, uh, you, you're going to get people who just expect these things to work and it better, <laughs> you know?
2: Yeah. Um. But we'll 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 talk more about that another time. Um, And then uh, Jonathan also asked about timetable estimate on a mid engine uh, C8 Corvette for normal people who want to spend less than 100. Who cares? Um, The mid engine Corvette's been coming since
1: 1967.
2: Yeah, And if if and when it it does arrive, I don't think there will be one for less than 100 grand. Um, My guess is, you know, from conversations I've had with some of my colleagues around here. Uh, That we may end up with two distinct Corvettes, uh, a a low volume, high priced mid engine car to take on the. uh,
1: So you think they'll call that like uh, the Zora or something? That's the rumor, right? Like it's going to be.
2: Yeah, Zora or, you know, something like that. That's, you know, that that's what we're hearing. Uh, And then, you know, the Stingray will be the front end, you know, will continue the front engine uh tradition that'll be the the mainstream corvette you know in the 50 60 70 thousand dollar range uh as for more track worthy than today's c7 z06 um actually it probably it almost certainly will be more track worthy uh the uh the z06 actually has some issues with uh running on the track uh with overheating uh after about 15 minutes and in fact i just saw something today about a lawsuit from z06 owners against gm uh, because they don't hold up very well in track rate and track use speaking of so, lawyers <laughs> yeah um so why don't you why don't you hit uh bring up the all right uh, so twitter on questions. twitter uh the first
1: question we got was from Corey. um he says an associate took a 17 a 2017 four runner out for a test drive and said it was underpowered and uh he says he found the same in the tacoma uh is toyota behind on engine development
2: Um, I wouldn't necessarily say, uh, behind, um, you know, I think most of their engines are are pretty good and in many respects, you know, are, are, are very good. Um, but you know, the Tacoma and the Forerunner, you know, are fairly hefty and, you know, probably the, that V6, you know, that they use yeah. in there is, you know, is somewhat underpowered and, you know, it's not the best choice for that truck. So,
1: uh, the Tacoma uh, got... <laughs> for years they were using a four liter version of the v6 in both uh last i think last year or did, when they refreshed the tacoma and sort of redesigned it um
2: yeah, i think it was for 16 it got
1: the 3.5 liter um with a little bit more power and and more more flexibility under the the power peak um you know it has a, a wider uh wider window of cam timing variability so it can actually run as a partial atkinson cycle and pick up some efficiency and also you know it can advance the cams a little more for for low-end torque and stuff so the 3.5 feels better in the tacoma than the old four liter did uh but the the forerunner is stuck with that old four uh four liter that just feels over it, it does feel underpowered
2: yeah um in general you know i think toyota's powertrains are as good as anyone's
1: yeah i'll agree Um, with that
2: that that's you know those two trucks i think are the exception to the rule
1: and it's not that they're it's not that they're really behind the curve or anything it's just the engines are what they are and nobody's really complaining um you know they they sell every tacoma they can make really uh that's
2: yeah and you know i mean it's you know, they don't market it as a sport truck or anything like that. It's not marketed as a high performance truck. Yeah. So it, it does, it does the job that it needs to.
1: And I, the engine is definitely, uh, those two, the the four liter for, for the most part, like, yeah, it's, it hasn't been updated in a while, but it's, it's not, it's not terrible, but yeah, you're going to, you're going to find like, you, you know, uh, the, the Colorado and Canyon feel a little more sprightly. Um, even though horsepower numbers are roughly, you know, on par.
2: Um, but when when the next generation Tacoma and Forerunner arrive, and you know probably in the next few years, <clears throat> um, don't be surprised to see um, a, a variation of the new uh, twin turbo V six that's in the new LS five Lexus LS five hundred uh, making an appearance in some of the Toyota branded trucks as well.
1: Uh, I guarantee you, probably, in, gonna be, probably yeah. You're I was going to say, I too. guarantee you that's going to be in the Tundra to compete with uh, the, the EcoBoost Fords. Um, yep. Yeah, I'd be interested to see if they go actually down to a turbocharged four-cylinder in the Tacoma. Um, now, that the, you know, that turbocharging is just becoming embraced everywhere.
2: Yeah, I mean, you know, to- Toyota, you know, I, I I think it's kind of maybe overstating it to say they're behind the curve, you know, in their engine design. I think, you know, they just had different priorities, um, you know, and they were, they were doing some different things. You know, they were focusing on, basic you know thermodynamic efficiency um and you know they certainly you know all their engines have variable valve timing and and, and uh, lift and things like that uh and you know a lot of their engines have dual fuel injections with port and direct injection so you know they're i wouldn't i think it's overstating it to say they're behind but they're they just decided to go a different direction but they are now starting to roll out more uh direct injected turbo engines as well both in in lexus and and starting to come down into the toyota brand as well yeah.
1: so we'll keep an eye on toyota or in the meantime just buy something else if you feel they're underpowered there you <laughs> get a jeep um <laughs> so uh our pal uh beats mocha however you say his name anyway uh he says his question is on the civic type r any thoughts on the first drives um yeah, I the well, since we weren't invited
2: yeah, on those for I didn't drives, make too
1: much noise uh, to get on it, but uh yeah, the wing is dumb. Other than that, I think the car's uh yeah, I don't know.
2: From yeah, I mean from reading a couple of the reviews it sounds like it's really good. Um the powertrain, you know, is is excellent as always, you know, from a Honda or, or almost always. Um you know the one thing that Honda decided to do with the Type R, um, where they didn't follow the rest of the crowd uh, this time and this generation, is they stuck with front wheel drive uh, rather than going all wheel drive like the Focus RS and the Golf R and and the Subaru S.
1: But I don't think that's necessarily like a, a bad thing.
2: No, well, not necessarily. You know, and if you execute it right, yeah, you know, especially at the PowerPoint, they've got you know they're they're it's like three hundred and seven horsepower you know, which is not quite as much as the, uh, as, you know, as the Ford and the VW. Um, so, and, and what they've done is they've put, um, you know, they've changed up the front suspension. So it's not the standard, um, McPherson strut layout in the front, but it's, uh, it's a setup similar to what's been done by other manufacturers in recent years on higher performance front wheel drive cars, like the previous generation focus RS and, um, GM's done it on some of their vehicles, um, where the geometry of the the strut setup separates the steering axis from um, some of the other motions and helps to mitigate uh, torque. Oh, is axis. it like the, the hyper strut where
1: it creates a different virtual yeah, steering it's, axis? That's
2: ex- it's exactly yeah. it. Yeah. Um, so um, I'll I'll drop in a link to uh, an article I wrote way back when on Autoblog um about the hyper strut when uh gm launched it and that can explain it a little better and it's it's pretty similar layout to that well so like and gm didn't
1: they were the first to market
2: with it but they didn't develop it that was actually that was a supplier that developed the hyper strut, i believe Uh, In conjunction with GM, maybe, I, maybe, I don't know. I I don't know. I think, I think it was done in GM wasn't actually first to market with something like that with us. I mean, you know, all, all of these have slightly different slight variations in their execution, but the basic concept of separating the steering axis from other motions in in the the wheel um, are comparable to, or have been done in a variety of ways by other manufacturers like Audi has done it. Um, with a multi-link. Uh, yeah. With, with like end. eight ball joints per side.
1: It, it works. Yeah. It does. <laughs> um,
2: but I mean, the, the, the premise is the same, yeah. though, which is to, um, minimize the impact of the torque on the, the steering mode. Well,
1: And it, it is like, I mean, that's honestly, that's the, the basic geometry of steering systems is like, you have your, your actual axis that creates the virtual axis because of, well, it's, it's fascinating. If you want to look at it, um, Yeah, but uh yeah and and, you know like i i'm not concerned really that it's a 300 horsepower car with front wheel drive as long as it it has been sort of tuned properly i don't see that as a problem i actually see that as a a plus it it doesn't have extra weight to carry around so you know in terms of
2: yeah i mean you know adding all-wheel drive you know adds another 100 150 pounds to the thing um so you know it's going to be a lighter more nimble machine um and uh it should uh you know it from from what I've seen so far it works very well. Uh, hopefully sometime this summer uh, I'll get a chance to drive it and I'll uh, let you know. And Honda does know a thing or two about
1: how to get a front wheel drive car out of a corner. Um I was it, it was the last what was it the the 90 I want to say like 96 97 Prelude it, they introduced it was it's basically a a, a torque vectoring um differential it was ATTS i think it would transfer the power to the it would across the um the the front differential so the inside wheel wouldn't spin i forget and it was like it would operate with like a thump it was like a locking differential basically <laughs> it would just like it would give you this little uh, thump it was,
2: it was a it was a very ingenious mechanical system yeah that that worked quite well um you know they they ended up coming up with other solutions to do it better but um you know they, they they've often you know that's one of the things that honda has done throughout its history has come up with very ingenious ways alternative ways to do things that other car makers yeah. don't necessarily well i
1: mean and even even uh, with just you, you can do that now with um, the anti-lock braking hardware is you just use the the brakes to slow down that that one wheel and it'll with an open differential it'll transfer across uh to the right. the uh, inside
2: and that's what most of the torque vectoring systems that you see on cars today are it's that's exactly what they're doing yeah
1: so uh, I have no doubt that the thing's gonna be tremendous fun to drive it just it kind of looks a little ridiculous but I mean in that class of vehicle huh. It seems to fit. Hey, everybody has their own taste, right? If you want conservative, get a GTI or a Golf R. I'm sorry, Golf R, (laughs) which also has its own little bit of ridiculous looking to it. So anyway, uh, I think we are we are done. That is all the questions that I got on Twitter.
2: Yeah. Uh, just, you know, well, uh, before we quit, I uh, just want to give a shout out to a few of our listeners uh, that have let me know about that. They listened to the show recently. Uh, Jim Lau from Race Logic. So for anybody that's ever used a V-Box for doing uh, data recording in their, I want to use a V-Box Sorry. for data recording. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, if, you, if you've got specific projects you want to work on, let me know, and I'll hook you up with uh, with Jim. He said he's willing to uh, help us out if we've got some projects we want to do. Uh, so I will, uh, I'll, I'll connect you with him. And uh, let see who else. Uh, Robin Warner. Oh yeah. Uh, ex of uh, ex of Hyundai. He's uh, now at Auto Week. Um, and uh, let's see who else. Uh, That's the wrong way to go in the industry. You want to go from
1: the publication to the automaker, not the other way around.
2: I'm just saying. Mm, well, depends on what you're looking for in I, life. I
1: guess if you're looking for like being able to make the mortgage payment, it's generally better to go from the publication to the
2: automaker. That 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 is usually the case. <laughs> um, you know, but you know, from from what I've heard, uh, Crane Communications treats their employees pretty well. So, uh, Robin seems to be pretty happy Good. these days. Uh, he's much, seems to be more content than most. Uh, ex-journalists I've I've known over the last uh, half dozen years have been uh, after their move over to the PRs. Good,
1: all right, well, excellent. Thank you for listening. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and thanks to everybody else for listening and, and you know if you like the show um, you know go ahead and give it a rating somewhere wherever it is that uh, you get it from that has ratings whether that's iTunes or whatever uh, share it with all your friends you know post it on social media um, send us your emails with your comments and questions and we'll try to get to them we got, got through a bunch of them today um, and uh, hopefully we'll have some, some more for next week
1: alright thanks for listening